Yes, my name's Mike Portland, and um, got up at five in the morning to get in my car and drive to San Diego to preach the word. Um, I got up at five, left at six, got here in an hour and 45 minutes. That's pretty good, right? I think that's pretty good. Um, super excited to be here, to be able to open up the scriptures with you guys. It's, it's an incredible honor. I love seeing what the Lord is doing here. We love Obed and Elena. We pray for you guys. Um, yeah, we're just, Obed's a great, not only a great preacher, but he has a true shepherd's heart. And as he said, we got to know each other by working together at Reality LA, where we were both pastoral residents. But don't ask us what a pastoral resident is, because we, we don't know. We just know that, we just know we did pastor stuff and didn't get paid for it. Um, well, since I haven't been here before, I thought I'd just share a little bit about my story. Um, I didn't grow up in the church or around Christians. Uh, came out of a, a broken home. My parents divorced when I was eight years old, and I quickly turned to uh, gangs in, in my neighborhood and drugs to find a sense of family and belonging. And so when I was 13 years old, I started using, uh, I started using pretty, pretty heavy drugs. And my drug addiction continued all the way until I was uh, 21 years old. Because of the drugs and the gangs, it, it led to me spending quite a lot of time incarcerated. And uh, when I was 21 years old, while I was in jail, God saved me. Um, he, there was a, a man in the jail cell with me who invited me to church, and I, I said I'd go. And it was the Gideon speaking that day. You know the guys that leave Bibles in your hotel rooms? It was these guys in their 70s with bow ties, and I didn't get anything out of the sermon at all, but God was beginning to stir up something in my heart and beginning to draw me to himself, and I connected with some other Christians in there, and they, they discipled me. They told me what it means to follow Christ and uh, told me to read the book of John and come back when I'm done and ask questions and all of those things, and God has been incredibly gracious in my life. And that's the only reason I mention those things is just to say that I am a man who is truly amazed by God's grace. Um, I still struggle with many things, but God delivered me from my addiction almost instantaneously, which I know is not the norm for most people, but that's what he did. I want to give him glory for that. Um, I've been walking with Jesus for 18 years now. I've been married for 16. Um, I have two sons an eight-year-old son, Asher, and a 13-year-old son who's taller than me, which I know that's not like super hard to do, but <laughs> he's taller than me. He has a mustache. The, the testosterone in our home is, is raging. It's, it's, a, it's a new thing, um, but I'm super thankful uh, for my kids and my wife. I've been a pastor for almost 15 years. Seven of those years were in South Africa where my wife and I planted a church before we moved to L.A., now I pastor at Reality LA with four other pastors that I love and trust so much. I'm so thankful to be able to serve with them on that team. It, always, it hasn't always been easy, but God has been so faithful. Um, so let's jump into the word of God. That's a little bit about who I am. Let's, more importantly, see who Jesus is. Um, we're in Mark chapter 2, so if you want to turn there. Gospel of Mark chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning. This story is probably familiar to some of you. Uh, when Obed gave me the passage I read it, I was like, oh yeah, I know this story. How, 
how am I going to preach this passage? Um, It's an incredible story. And it's a profound story in the way that it sheds light on the person and work of Jesus. And it's also profound in what it reveals about our true condition as people and how Christ is the answer to our deepest need. What happens when the desperation of man meets the mercy of God? Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven or to say rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Lord, as we come this morning before your word, we are reminded of the fact that when we open up the scriptures, that you speak to us. That the word of God is breathed out by your spirit. And that it's not just, these stories in this book are not just here to give us information But these stories are the very word of God that are given to us to transform our hearts. And Lord, that's my prayer this morning that we would encounter Jesus as we open up this word and as we learn the meaning of this text and seek to apply it to our hearts, Lord. Above all else, we ask that we would encounter Christ and that as we encounter him, we would submit to his power his goodness, his love, his grace, and be changed because of it. And so, Lord, we ask that you would move this morning in our midst as your word of God, as your word goes out in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, in our passage this morning, I want us to notice three things. A demonstration of faith, a surprising response, and and the transforming power of grace. The first thing we see in this passage is a demonstration of faith. Now let me give you a little background. The first chapter of Mark has been an introduction to the person of Jesus Christ and an introduction to the character of his ministry. His priority has been clear. It's to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And alongside his teaching and preaching, he would authenticate his power by performing various miracles. He didn't come primarily to be a miracle worker, but to preach the good news. 
Now this morning we begin the second section of the book of Mark, chapters 2 through chapters 3, verse 6. And what you have in this section of Mark are five controversy narratives. The controversy surrounding Jesus at this point in his ministry is beginning to grow. Claims about himself and his authority and his personhood are becoming clearer and clearer and the controversy is building. And we see in the first of these narratives this passage here. Now notice what happened. Jesus has come quietly back into Capernaum and he's there probably in Peter's house doing what he had come to do. He's with the crowd. He's with the people. Uh, I think, were you guys in Mark last week as well? So you read about the man with leprosy, right? And a little bit before that, you read about how uh, Jesus was ministering all day long. And then after a long day of ministry, he went to Peter's mother-in-law's house. He healed her, of, healed her of her fever. And while they're in there, they hear a knock at the door and someone looks through the peephole and the whole front of the house is filled with demon-possessed people and the sick. It was like the thriller video, Michael Jackson's thriller, on the front yard, just craziness. And Jesus spent the whole night touching people and healing them. And the crowds have begun to just gather around Jesus. They want to get close to him. They want to get near him, mostly to receive healing or just to see his power in action. But it says Jesus is in this packed house so crowded there's no room they're like sardines and it says Jesus was preaching the word to them now we're not given the words of his sermon here but no doubt he was connecting for the people how his person and work are fulfillments to the prophetic messianic prophecies of the old testament I am the one that the old testament spoke of I am the fulfillment of all these prophecies and scriptures that you all know so well And as Jesus was there teaching, there are these men who have arrived and they're bringing their paralyzed friend to Jesus to be healed. Who knows how far they came, but they're carrying their friend to see if he would be healed. We're told that these guys, they couldn't get anywhere near Jesus. The crowds were too thick. And so they do this incredible thing. They, They decide, why don't we go up to the roof and dig a hole through the roof and lower our buddy down right into the center of the Bible study, right in front of Jesus. And so in ancient Israel in those days, it was flat roof, stairway on the outside. They go up and and, and the roofs in those days were made of mud and sticks and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't like today. So you could literally dig through it. In those days, people had to change their roof probably probably once a year, once every couple years, just because it wasn't very strong. But these guys decide to dig through the roof to get their friend to Jesus. And so they, it, they start to dig through. And in the Greek, it literally says they unroofed the roof. And so you can imagine the scene. Jesus is standing there teaching. They're all gathered watching him. And they start here rumbling on the roof. And ceiling tiles start to fall. And crumbs of dirt are falling on I don't know if Jesus actually needed a scroll. I think he had the Old Testament memorized. But if he did, there was dirt falling and and next thing you know, a beam of light comes shining down and everyone stops and they look up and this hole is being exposed. And they begin to just lower their friend down in front of Jesus. It's a radical, amazing scene here. Now it says 
as they were doing this, Jesus looked at them, and it says Jesus saw their faith. I love the example of these men. It's as if they were here in this part of the scripture as an example of what faith does. And Jesus responds to their faith. It's hard to not think of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, where it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Those who come to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Genuine faith is always rooted in truth. It's rooted in God's declaration of who he is. It's rooted in the truths of the gospel. Faith is not some kind of religious leap in the dark. It's rooted in truth. But it's not just that. It's important to say that faith is not just theological. It's never just conceptual. Faith is never just mental assent to something. Faith is always action. It's always a way of living. It always leads to a way of living your life. It's always an approach to life. Faith will not just change the way that you think or believe. Faith will always change the way you act. And you see that in in this paralyzed man and his friends because they really did believe that Jesus had the power that he declared he had. And so they would not relent. They would not stop. They were actually driven to do something radical to get their friend in front of Jesus. And that points us to something that I think is really important for all of us to consider. Genuine faith, true faith, it doesn't wilt in the face of obstacles. Faith does not give up in the face of difficulties. Faith doesn't run away when things are hard. Faith doesn't quit. It doesn't give up. It doesn't give way to doubt. It doesn't walk away in the face of the unexpected and difficult. Let me ask you, what happens when you face obstacles? When you face hard things? When the life of faith isn't easy? When you're receiving opposition or life is difficult or you're not sure what God is doing and you're suffering in some way? What happens to your faith? Do you begin to revisit your old habits? Do you begin to isolate yourself from community? Do you begin to neglect the Lord? Oh, that God would give us this kind of faith. That we would not only believe the truths of the gospel, but that those truths would actually form the way that we behave, the way that we live. So that I can say, I'm doing what I'm doing as a husband because I believe in God. I believe what God has said. I'm doing what I'm doing as a wife because I believe in God. I'm doing what I'm doing as a friend, as an employee, as a mother, as a father, because I really do believe that God exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. I wish I could say that everything I do was an expression of this kind of faith. But it's not. And when I find myself in that place, I often pray the prayer, I believe, help my unbelief. I pray that prayer so often. Because my desire is to be the type of man where everything I do, everything I am, would be shaped and motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And faith is how we lay hold of Christ. 
and how we follow him throughout the rest of our lives. The faith of these men was visible, right? They were determined. What great friends. I want friends like this. That when I need to get to Jesus, they're willing to do whatever it takes to get me at the feet of Jesus. I pray for you that you would be these kind of friends. That at all costs, you want to get people to the Lord. You want to get people at the feet of Jesus Christ. Because they believed they were willing to go to any length to receive the healing that they were looking for. But that's not what's radical about this story. We're about to get radical. (laughs) Jesus observes their faith and what he does next demands our attention. What we see next is a surprising response. Notice Jesus' response to this man's faith. Verse five. When he saw their faith, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Definitely not the response that the man was looking for or his friends for that matter and certainly not the response that the religious leaders were anticipating. The expectation was that Jesus would heal this man physically and then be done with it but what Jesus does here is far more scandalous, far more profound. He declares forgiveness to this man for his sins. Kind of seems like Jesus is missing the point, right? Here, I'm paralyzed. I can't walk. I'm laying in front of you. My need is obvious. Everyone in the room, the need was obvious. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. See, Jesus knew that this man was far more needy than he even realized. He had a far greater need than the need to merely be physically healed. See, this is Jesus' priority. This is why he came. He came to seek and save the lost. It's always a mistake for us to think that if Jesus would just do this thing for me, then I will be okay. If Jesus will just remove this hard situation from my life, then everything's gonna be okay. If he would just heal this person or give me this job or provide in this way or bring me this spouse, then everything is going to be okay. The truth is our real problem is never merely physical. It's never merely circumstantial. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about our suffering, but what we need most is a healing that goes far deeper. We need our sins forgiven. Now, we know that wherever Jesus went, controversy followed him. And notice how the religious leaders respond. Look again at verse six. Excuse me, I need a little water. It says, now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Do you see what just happened? Everything was fine as long as Jesus was just healing people. Everyone's okay with that. 
Everyone expected that. Everyone wanted that. No objections. But the miracles were never the point. They were pointers to the main point found in his teaching. Now we notice that the religious leaders are the only ones here sitting. It says they were sitting there questioning. You just picture them with their legs crossed, just stroking their theological beards and being critical. Everyone else is crowded in. They're standing room only, but the scribes are sitting, no doubt feeling like the place of honor was reserved for them to be, to be seated there. Everyone thought that if anyone had a shot at making it into the kingdom of, of God, kingdom of heaven, it would, it would be these guys. It would be the scribes. They looked really good on the outside. But Jesus is going to expose the unbelief and blasphemy on the inside. See, the scribes, they get the claim right, but they reach the wrong conclusion. We know that God alone can forgive sins. That's true. Jesus here is claiming to have authority to forgive sins. Jesus is making himself out to be God. Blasphemy, right? Their question was right, but their conclusion was wrong. So these scribes have challenged Jesus' authority, but only in their hearts at this point. But Jesus knows what they're thinking. And this is when Jesus presents proof that he is God. Jesus didn't heal the man at first. He healed him to make a very specific point. And before he does that, he proposes a test to the religious leaders. He asks them, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or pick up your bed and walk? Notice, he didn't ask which is easier to do, forgive or heal, but which is easier to say. Forgiveness of sins is invisible. It's internal. You can't really tell if it's happened or not. It's impossible to see from the outside. Physical healing is visible and external. And so it would be immediately evident to everyone if Jesus' words fell to the ground. If he said to the man, get up and walk, and he wasn't able to do it. And so Jesus, perceiving the unbelief in their heart, he, he commands the man to, to rise up and walk. And it says the paralytic immediately obeys. He rises and immediately picks up his mat and goes home. Now, no one is looking at this paralyzed man and thinking, wow, that guy is amazing. <laughs> did you see what he just did? No one's looking at Jesus and says, what a persuasive speaker. So charismatic. What a great pep talk. See, the problem was the paralyzed man's legs were dead. He had no ability to obey Jesus' command. But that's the point. Jesus can heal the paralytic because as God, he has the power of the creator. The paralytic doesn't need to have the ability to obey the command because Jesus can create what he calls for. He calls something into existence that was not there before. Dead legs live because Jesus spoke living legs into existence. Notice what everyone should know when they see the healing, verse 10. But that you may know, Jesus said, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now there's so much more going on in this passage than meets the eye when you just read it. Notice, he does not use the word ability, but authority. And this is not merely a question of can Jesus do it, but has Jesus been given the right to do it? And this is a massive point. We're gonna go get a little, uh, you know, this is going to be a little Bible study-ish here, but it's good. 
Jesus uses the title here for himself for the first time, the Son of Man. Now, when you look at, when you look at that title, along with the word authority, it takes you to one place in the Bible. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 says this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, in the Septuagint that word dominion is authority, and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." See, in Daniel's vision here, the Ancient of Days is on the throne and the books for judgment are opened. The Son of Man is given the authority to judge sins. And here in Mark, we see he also has authority to forgive sins. So we have an Old Testament connection between Son of Man and authority. People were supposed to see Jesus' claim to be the Son of Man with the authority here on earth to forgive sins and cry out, Behold, it's, this is God. This is the promised Messiah. This is the one who has fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament that have pointed to our coming Savior. That he has come to save. Our eternal destiny will be determined by our response to Jesus. The paralytic is forgiven and he's adopted into God's family. The scribes reject Jesus as God and think he's committing blasphemy. But here's the irony. If Jesus really is God and they're denying it, then they are the ones committing blasphemy. So once again, Mark has given us a story in which Jesus does what only God can do to show that he is truly God. We've seen that miracles are not the point. They are pointers. The physical, visible to all miracles, verifies the spiritual, invisible to all miracles. The man carried his bed, but he no longer carried the burden of his sins on his back. What What should have been more astonishing? The miracle of healing or the miracle of forgiveness? The healing would cost the owner of the house some roof repairs. Forgiveness of sins would cost Jesus his life. And a Jew in those days would have thought that forgiveness can only come through the temple with a sacrifice. But the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Jesus died on the cross and offered the perfect sacrifice. He saves all that come to him by faith. The Son of Man is given authority to give his life as a payment for sinners. We don't just have the promise of forgiveness, but the purchase of it in Christ. See, salvation is the far greater miracle. And it's our deepest need. And it leads to our last point that we see here in this passage. The transforming power of grace. See, when you come to Jesus, you always get more than what you bargained for. Right? You're just like, I thought it was this, but it's this. Jesus doesn't only heal this man of his physical problem because that's not his main problem or his deepest need. The paralyzed man got far more than healing and even more than just forgiveness and some legal status. He got a new family. Look again at verse five. Notice how Jesus addresses this man. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. 
It was very rare for Jesus to call someone's son. It's the Greek word technon in Greek. It's, it means intimate. It's a familial term. See, faith in Christ brings more than a new spiritual status, forgiveness. It gives us a new family. We are adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. He's become part of the family of God. We, we, we become children of God rather than children of wrath through Jesus Christ. Could anything be more wonderful than being a son or daughter of God? Listen, if you are in Christ, you have been adopted into God's family as a son and daughter of God. Adoption is such a powerful part of the gospel. Listen to what J.I. Packer says about adoption. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. This is so important for us to understand for two reasons. Understanding that we've been adopted into God's family, it changes the way that we think about God. And this is so important for us. I don't know how you think about God. I don't know what you think of or what, what kind of person, what kind of image, what kind of attitude, what kind of posture comes to your mind when you think about God. And it's hard for some of us because we tend to compare our heavenly father to our earthly fathers who maybe weren't there or maybe even worse, they were there but they were not not good fathers. We all have different experiences with our earthly fathers and it's hard not to draw parallels to God as our father. I came across a story about a woman who attended a conference on adoption in Christ. And while she was there, she recounted remembering a story from her childhood. And I want to read what she says. She said, One day when I was very young... I saw my older sister hanging up my father's white business shirts on the clothesline to dry. And I was suddenly filled with the urge to hang up one of my daddy's white shirts. He was my daddy too, and I was his daughter. And I loved him in my childlike way, and I wanted to express it. So I washed his shirts, but I, I couldn't reach the clothesline. It was too high. But I saw a wheelbarrow in the yard, and its handles were just the right height. So I didn't notice how rusty the wheelbarrow was, and rather joyfully, I clothespinned the wet shirts to the handles so that they could dry. When my dad got home and saw the shirt on the wheelbarrow, he became very angry with me and punished me severely for ruining his shirt. She goes on to, to say that as she was remembering that story from her past, she says, I realized that through the years, I had not been believing that my father in heaven was any different than my earthly father. I'd not been listening when he described himself as father. I hadn't been believing the gospel. So the next morning, I, I told our counselor at the conference that I thought I was beginning to understand. I told him the story and said that 
I guess if it was my heavenly father uh, standing next to me to the wheelbarrow with the wheelbarrow with the ruined shirt on it, he would forget the shirt and he would hug me. And I'll never forget what my counselor said to me. He said, you still don't understand fully. God would not overlook the shirt, but take it and put it on and wear it to work. And when someone commented on the rest marks, he would say, let me tell you about my little girl and how much she loves me. I was overwhelmed with this realization. She continued, I'm beginning to realize that my Christian life has been a continual effort to earn God's pleasure by getting the shirts hung upright. That God would answer my prayer if my theology was right. That God would smile upon me if my life was right. And since I knew how I failed day by day in my works, I sort of snuck them up on the line and tried to be away before God got home, so to speak. I finally realized that my entire Christian life had been oppressive. I did not know how to live day by day without an overwhelming sense of failure to perform up to what I thought God demanded. With that, with, with that came a sense of God being disappointed and even disgusted with me. I don't know how you think about God. Distant, angry, harsh, aloof, disappointed. If you don't know that in Christ, the eternal countenance of God over you is a smile, you don't get adoption. Understanding our adoption in Christ transforms the way we understand God. And it gives us a newfound confidence to go before him even in the midst of our failures, even in our worst moments, even when we've repented of something a thousand times, to continually come back to him and fall upon his grace to know that in Christ he is smiling over you so powerful. But secondly, understanding adoption transforms the way we see ourselves. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Through our adoption, the Father sees you the same way he sees Jesus. This is the most radical part of the gospel to me. When you come to God with faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit unites you to Jesus. That you are in Christ and Christ is in you. Now Jesus is unique in his sonship but everything that is true of Jesus in this family is true for all the children. Just as God fully delights in Jesus, he fully delights in you, Christian. Just as God fully accepts Jesus, he fully accepts you. And so God says to us, I want you to call me the same thing Jesus calls me. Call me Abba, Father, which was an Aramaic used word when children were addressing their father. It was a term of intimacy. It was a term of adoration. It's about relationship. 
Understanding our identity as adopted sons and daughters of God changes everything. And Jesus calls this man son. I'm convinced that the most surprising and consistent battle we face in the Christian life is the fight to train our conscience that God really, truly, and enthusiastically approves of us. There is no harder battle that I fight as a Christian than to believe that God really is pleased with me. Jesus rose out of the water at his baptism. Behold, my son, in whom I am well pleased. Did you know that's what he declares over you in Christ? My son, my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Right? If the gospel had anything to do with our performance, we would be lost. We'd be without hope. Our salvation is in Christ and his finished work in our place and for us. And it changes everything. This is the transforming power of grace. That it's not about earning. It's not about performing. It's believing that Christ has done it all on our behalf for us. Not just the forgiveness of our sins, but power to live a new life. To follow him for the rest of our lives. Insecurity is the greatest enemy of intimacy. So we need to know that we are loved, that we are approved of, that we are welcomed by God because of Jesus and it changes everything. So how can you and I relate to the paralyzed man in this story? We may not have the same obvious need as this man, but we are all in need of Jesus' healing touch. This man needed physical healing, but all of us are in need in healing from sin and its effects. And what Jesus did for this man physically is a picture of what he does for all who come to him in faith. I love 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor those who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. Those, those darn swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And Christian, here it is. Verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Notice Paul doesn't say, and such were some of you until you got your act together. He said, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were cleansed. You've been sanctified by Jesus. Paul's saying, Christian, Your old identity, that's not who you are anymore. You've been washed. You've been set apart. You're no longer guilty before God because you've been forgiven. Your old identity was defined by what you did and what you were tempted by, but you've been given a new identity. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. This is now who you are. If you've trusted in Jesus, you're not a sinner who sometimes acts like a saint. You're a saint who still struggles with sin. And that struggle is proof that you belong to him. Because when you sin, the spirit of God who lives inside of you rises up against your flesh and declares war. And you feel terrible. And that's good. (laughs) That's proof that God has not given up on you, that he is at work in your life. It's called conviction. It's evidence that he loves you. It's proof that he will not let you go. 
The whole journey of the Christian life is a process of becoming practically what God has declared us to be positionally in Christ. But the problem for a lot of us is we think, I still have so much brokenness. I'm forgiven, but I still struggle, so what's it going to matter if I just continue to do these things? It reminds me of uh, my son who saw me working out in the living room a few days ago. And he said, Dad, what are you doing? I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get a little healthier, trying to get in shape. And he goes, Dad, you're almost 40 and you still don't have a six-pack. It's not going to happen. <laughs> Just give up. It's like, dang. Can't give up. Sometimes that's, I hate to compare my kids to Satan, but um, <laughs> parents, parents can relate. Sometimes it's, There's a comparison there. But the enemy is wanting us to give up. It's never going to get any better. You've, You've struggled with this thing for so long. Just give up. But we have to remember that our sins and our temptations are not our identity. The Father sees you as clean. You've been declared clean. The blameless one has taken all of your blame. The spotless one has taken all of your spots. And so do not call unclean what God has made clean. Jesus came not just to give us a fresh start, he came to give us a whole new identity. Listen, church, in Christ, your failure is an event, it's not your identity. So shed the lie today and rest in the truth of who you are in Christ. Some of you might be here and you're in a desperate place right now. Jesus is here with you to meet your need. Your greatest need, my greatest need, is to be forgiven of our sin and brought into a right relationship with God. And if you're a Christian, when you sin and you repent, you're not resaved. You're, you're still a Christian when you sin, but the intimacy is interrupted. The communion is broken. And when we come to God in repentance, it's not that he's angry with us and now he's happy with us again. We're just, we're his sons, we're his daughters who need some discipline in love. And he brings us back in. He welcomes us in. So, what are the things in your life that you know are not right or broken? What we often do is we end up living in that hopelessly. Some habit, some condition, something wrong with us, and we push people away from that area. Maybe we've been burned before. Maybe we see that they don't really have answers for it. But do you sprint to Jesus in those times? Rather than becoming bitter and withdrawn, unfeeling people who become insensitive to the very things that are eating away at us, we need to be like this man and his friends who are taking the most hopeless positions that we have and rushing to Jesus and saying to him, I bring this before you. We don't have means in ourselves. We've tried. The only thing trying has made me realize is that I'm not the answer. Do you have confidence today that Jesus knows you and cares deeply about what you're going through and that he has authority to forgive you of your sins? It's my prayer that we would have a renewed confidence in Jesus to rescue us all in the ways that we need to be rescued. It's also my prayer for this church, for King's Cross, that this would be a safe place for desperate people because we are a community of desperate people. 
I want you to leave here realizing and understanding that whatever you bring to Jesus for hope, for power, for forgiveness, he is more than sufficient to meet your need. And he was willing to go this far for this man, but that's nothing compared to how far he was willing to go for you and I when he died on the cross. So let's pray. Nothing articulates desperate people more than a praying people. Father, we come before you today, Lord, as desperate people. Coming from different places, different life experiences, we all have different issues in our lives, different sins, different struggles. But Lord, we we confess this morning that you have what we need. Jesus, you are what we need. We need you. We ask that you would send your spirit to fall upon us, God. To open our eyes where we've been blind. To help us to cling on to the truth of what has been done for us in Christ and who you declare us to be, that you are a good father, that you love us, that you approve of us, that you accept us, even in our failures, even in our worst moments, because it's all about Jesus. If there's anyone here today, Lord, who does not know you as father, I pray, God, that you would remove the blinders from their hearts and that you would draw them to Jesus, that you would give them the gift of faith to be able to lay hold of Jesus this morning. I pray that they would know that they don't have to have all the answers answered. They just need to know that you are the answer to their deepest need pray they would trust in you today. And for the rest of us, God, I pray that our hearts would be freshly encouraged and strengthened by the gospel. That it really isn't about us. It's all about you, Jesus. We thank you for that, Lord. Would you heal us in all the ways we need to be healed, restore us where we need to be restored, encourage us, strengthen us. Lord, would you use us us to trust in you. Help us to trust in your timing. Help us to trust in your power. But most of all, Lord, help us to trust in your heart. We love you, Father, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.